Dear friends, my name is John Bergen. I use he, him, and his, and I'm recording this in Philadelphia on unceded Lenny Lenape land. In case you didn't know, you're listening to The Word is Resistance, a podcast exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about surviving, resisting, and thriving in our current context of violence, repression, and white supremacist heteropatriarchal colonial capitalism. We ask, what do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance in showing up for liberation? The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding, We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who came together for a movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014 and led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. This podcast is also a project of Surge Faith. Surge, or Showing Up for Racial Justice, organizes white people to take bold action against white supremacy. This podcast aims to resource us in that work, which means it's for everyone but geared towards white people working to build our resistance muscles. We welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. I'm going to begin the dive into the text this week with a chance to breathe and hear the text. So I will read this week's lectionary passage from the Hebrew Scriptures and ask a few open-ended questions. And if you want to and, and are able to, you can pull out for Samuel 17, 32-49 and read it right now, and you can skip ahead a minute or so. But this is our chance to, to read together before we dive in. So I invite you to close your eyes or focus on a point on the ground. If you're driving or walking or otherwise unable to close your eyes, that's okay. I invite you to breathe deeply and notice your breath. Feel your breath, fill your lungs and return out to the world. Breathe in and breathe out. Hear now this reading from 1 Samuel 17, 32-49. David said to Saul, Let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are just a boy and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. If it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them since he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go and 
May the Lord be with you. Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped Saul's sword over the armor, and he tried in vain to walk, for he was not used to them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these. I'm not used to them. So David removed them. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in his shepherd's bag in the pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. The Philistine came on and drew near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him, and when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. The Philistine said to David, I, Am I a dog? You come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the field. But David said back, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the Philistine army this very day to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the earth, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all its assembly may know that the Lord does not save by sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and the Lord will give you into our hand. When the Philistine drew nearer to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell down on the ground. Breathe in, breathe out. Feel the breath filling your lungs. Breathe out. Pay attention to what you are feeling right now and where in your body you are feeling it. How does the violence of this text affect you? Hold those feelings. Breathe in. Breathe out. Are you wearing ill-fitting armor right now? Is there some way you are trying to protect yourself that rubs you the wrong way? Who gave this armor to you and told you you had to wear it? What would it feel like to take it off? Breathe in and breathe out. Breathe in the sacred breath of God and breathe out the sacred breath of God. What does it mean to come to our enemies, those who harm our communities, in the name of the Lord of hosts? How might you embody coming in the name of the Lord? Breathe in and breathe out. As you continue to breathe, I invite you to open your eyes. All right, let's go. In preparing for this podcast in the past week, I was struck by how weird it is that this story is such a popular Bible story to tell children, given that ultimately and it ends with a young boy killing an adult by slinging a stone into his head and then later on decapitating him and bringing his head back to the town to show off. It's, it's a weird story. I mean, by Bible standards, it's not that weird. In the next chapter, David will purchase the king's daughter with the foreskins of 200 dead Philistines, which is the ultimate messed up masculine dick measuring move, but still. I think a lot of what strikes me in reading 
1 Samuel this past week is how much I am used to hearing it as a metaphor. Any situation where a weaker team defeats their more powerful opponents or where an oppressed community overcomes their oppressors is David and Goliath. This is a story about the incredibly mismatched struggle, but it's also one where one person will be killed by the other as a stand-in for their whole nation, where what is done to their body in this moment defines a relationship between nations. It is a story about the real consequences of throwing stones, the consequences wrought on bodies and on communities. So today I want to talk about throwing stones. I want to sit with hurling stones where we're throwing stones at each other but we would rather not be and where the impulse to hurl stones at others may come as a result of the stones that have been thrown at us in the first place. First let's talk about throwing stones at oppressors. Before I lived in Philadelphia I worked with an organization called Christian Peacemaker Teams in Palestine. CPT accompanies local human rights defenders and documents human rights violations at the invitation of local communities around the world. In Hebron, the largest city in the West Bank, that often looks like walking Palestinian children to school through a maze of checkpoints, military bases, and roads designed for Israelis and internationals only. I spent many mornings sitting outside a checkpoint tallying up how many young kids were stopped and frisked, detained, or allowed to go to school after passing through the metal detector under the watchful eye of some 19-year-old Israeli soldier. And because we were standing near the checkpoint, I spent many of those mornings ducking as some of those young children decided to throw small stones at the checkpoint. And almost without fail, the clanging of stones against the metal side of the checkpoint was all the excuse the soldiers needed to begin firing tear gas toward the crowds of children waiting outside the elementary school. As toxic smoke filled the air and drifted into the school, kids would scatter as soldiers strolled down the street firing gas and rubber bullets. Once the soldiers stopped to take selfies with a cloud of smoke behind them before returning to their checkpoint. These experiences filled me with rage. They reminded me of when I was bullied as a preteen and teenager. They reminded me how much I wanted to hurt the people who hurt me. As 19-year-old kids tortured 10-year-olds in front of me, I wanted to throw stones at them as well. I remember waking up once from a dream where I dreamt that I had attacked those soldiers Rambo-style. The logic of redemptive colonial violence had wormed its way into my dreams. When I was back in the States, people would ask me, but what about the Palestinian boys throwing stones? Why can't they be nonviolent? And I wanted to grab them and ask, have you ever seen a young man shoot a child with a rubber bullet and laugh? Have you ever watched six-year-old girls run screaming through clouds of tear gas, clutching their school backpacks? And then when I was back in the States, the uprising in Baltimore in spring 2015 happened, and I heard again this same twisted logic, the same thing we heard from nice white people after Ferguson, and so many times before and since. Why are they so violent? Why are they burning cop cars? Why are they attacking businesses? Don't they know we would listen if they were just nonviolent? This is whiteness at its most raw the defense of property over human life, the defense of state violence, and condemnation of the violence of the oppressed. It is the tried and true strategy of oppressors to recast themselves as David, to recast ourselves as David, to retell the story with in reality inverted, to say, they tried to kill me, I had to defend myself, and barely made it out with my life. 
it's a central strategy of the white supremacist movement right now. Most of us, and of course, wouldn't want to be a literal David, alone and without armor in a struggle to the death against a giant, but we love to be a metaphorical David. So second, let's talk about throwing stones at each other. So I want you to think about the last political event you went to, the last meeting or training or action or whatever. Seriously, pause for a second and think about being in that space. What did that room feel like? I went to college uh, at Oberlin College in Northeast Ohio. Oberlin was founded and built up by radical abolitionists and evangelicals. Their opposition to slavery and plantation capitalism came out of their belief that God called them to be perfect in every way. And 180 years later, students continue to organize radical social change and pursue a belief that leftist communities can be perfect, free of any oppression or harm. My mentor, Steve Hammond, a longtime pastor of Peace Community Church in Oberlin, likes to say that Oberlin perfectionism is alive and well, and it can easily get in the way of anything good happening. And I agree, ideological purity is an easier project than building community and building power. Being right is way easier than getting organized. And progressive Christians are as bad as anyone at this. I can't count how many times I personally have thought, oh, I don't want to work with that church or that group. They're way too patriarchal or homophobic or they have too many problematic white people or whatever. Protestant churches make a full-time project of splintering over slight theological differences, forming new denominations or creating new conferences. Here in Philly, I'm very grateful to be part of a network of Mennonite and Anabaptist churches in the city. And the leaders from these churches gather around a table for Bible study once a month. We bring together immigrant communities from Indonesia, the Philippines, Burma, and Haiti alongside African American, Mexican, white European, and Puerto Rican communities. We disagree pretty strongly on parts of our theology, but there's no doubt that when we gather together, it is a Pentecost moment that is a gathering of mostly colonized people speaking the truth to each other, sharing stories, with the Spirit acting as translator. I think a lot about this group when I think about how we can make our organizing more welcoming. Do we go into meetings wearing ill-fitting armor, ready to sling stones at our comrades? Are there conversations that aren't happening because people are afraid of getting hit with stones? How can we start with sharing experience and story instead of critiquing each other to demand ideological purity? I'm holding in my heart this piece from movement veteran Starhawk that my friend Ingrid shared with me recently. Starhawk writes in Building a Welcoming Movement, quote, We want the woke, at that moment of awakening, to feel a rush of exhilaration, a sense of coming home, of having found our people. And we need the unwoke, those who have not been activists before, those who may even have been agents of oppression or Trump voters or incapacitated by their own wounds or sunk in addictions, whether to oil, money, or opiates, to discover the joy and empowerment that comes with being part of a movement for change. To feel my deepest longing is to be an agent of justice in this world. And these are the people who will welcome me to be a part of this grand struggle for trans to transform the world and who will help me find my role and make my unique contribution." End quote. Third, I want to ask uh, a few questions about throwing stones at each other in the context of sexual violence in our communities. 
In the past year, the hard, hard work of survivors of sexual violence has broken open the conversation on how our communities support survivors and deal with people who cause harm. As more and more people have named publicly the person who harmed them, we see again and again the complicated webs of patriarchal power that push survivors out of our communities and allow the people who hurt them to stay in power. It's an apocalypse in the original sense of the word, an unveiling, a revealing of truth. And in this apocalyptic unveiling, we get to wrestle with fundamental questions of justice. My comrade Elizabeth Long writes, Sexual violence is a core part of colonization, genocide, slavery, imperialism, war, imprisonment, policing, and the other day-to-day -day realities of racial oppression. Sexual violence is used within systems of incarceration, deportation, and militarization to repress and control communities of color. Preventing, interrupting, and addressing sexual violence is not an add-on to our work. It is a part of the work of dismantling white supremacy and achieving collective liberation. End quote. That part of me that was bullied, that raged at the soldiers gassing children, wants so badly to throw stones at people who harm those I love. I want to bring them tumbling down. I want to cast them out until a friend sits me down to say that another friend, someone I care about deeply, raped her. Until a movement comrade lets me know that a leader in another part of the state assaulted someone and refuses to be held accountable. Until the apocalypse gets personal. Sexual violence is present in our movements. People who cause harm are present in our meetings, in our organizations, often in positions of power. This is not some abstract thing. This is real, real life-altering violence into the bodies and minds of people we love. Survivors know this. And it's an understatement to say that our churches are behind the curve on this. As a Mennonite pastor, I know very well that Mennonites are happy to use the language of restorative justice, a process we sometimes claim to have invented, to heap shame on survivors and protect people who cause harm. I've seen members of my family demand justice from Mennonite institutions and be told they were being too mean to the person who harmed them. The demon of patriarchal power holds sway over us when we use the language of justice to perpetrate further injustice. The devil wins when Goliath buries David under a hail of stones labeled peace and love. So here we sit. Many people listening to this are survivors. Many others, almost all of us, if we're honest, are probably people who have caused harm in different ways. As we struggle to abolish a prison system that promises to keep white and wealthy communities safe through the warehousing and torture of poor people, especially poor people of color, a system that holds punishment as its highest value, we must also struggle with how we can heal people and transform institutions that protect people who cause harm. We need consequences for our actions, repercussions for our behavior. We need communities that don't let us get away with shit, but who still love us. And we need to create spaces that let us take off the ill-fitting armor that others have tried to force on us and enter in the name of the Lord of Hosts. As Adrienne Marie Brown writes, quote, We will not cancel us. We hurt people, but we will not cancel us. Canceling is punishment, and punishment doesn't stop the cycle of harm, not long-term. Cancellation may even be counter-abolitionist. Instead of prison bars, we place each other in an overflowing box of untouchables, often with no trial, and strip us of past and future, of the complexity of being gifted and troubled, brilliant and broken. 
we will set down this punitive measure and pick each other up, leaving no traumatized person behind. We will not cancel us, but we must earn our place on this earth. We will tell each other we hurt people and who. We will tell each other why and who hurt us and how. We will tell each other what we will do to heal ourselves and heal the wounds in our wake. We will be accountable, rigorous in our accountability, all of us unlearning, all of us crawling towards dignity. We will learn to set and hold boundaries, communicate without manipulation, give and receive consent, ask for help, love our shadows without letting them rule our relationships, and remember we are of earth, of miracle, of a whole, of a massive river, love, life, life, love. May it be so. Today's call to action has two parts. The first is institutional. If you're part of a faith community or movement organization, check in on what sorts of policies or practices the group has in relation to addressing sexual harm and violence. Do these policies clearly articulate the Davids and Goliaths? Do they do everything they can to ensure the safety of the person harmed? Do they clearly articulate the process for holding people who have chosen harm accountable? Do they involve engaging the carceral system? You can check out the Creative Interventions Toolkit for practical resources on addressing interpersonal violence without relying on the carceral system. I'll include a link to this resource in the transcript. If you're part of a Christian church, you can check out the resources or the organization Grace. Again, link in the transcript. I'm not actually sure if there's one good way to do this, so I'd like to make this an open call. If you're listening and want to talk more about this, reach out to me. My email is john, J-O-H-N, at germantownmennonite.org. I want to talk with you, so the next time I'm on this podcast... We can provide more resources and dive deeper in, into this. The second part of the call to action is to plug into your local state's Poor People's Campaign. As you may know, across the country, in 40 states for the past six, week, six weeks, the Poor People's Campaign has been taking action at state houses, staging dramatic actions that highlight the many ways our country is waging a war on the poor. I have been moved by the organizing taking place here in Pennsylvania because it is rooted in sharing stories and organizing by finding commonalities instead of just critiquing language and imperfection. It correctly names the Goliath, the brutal policies that crush poor people and people of color across our country. As movement, el as movement elder Willie Baptist says, we only get what we are organized to take. In the next few months, that campaign will move from these first dramatic mobilizations into the ongoing work of building a huge base of poor and working class people and their allies. And, and they've been on this base building train for years now. They're getting organized to take back what they need. And this is our chance to be a part of a nonviolent moral revival that is seeking to transform our country at the root level. So find out what's happening in your state and plug in particularly if you are a professional middle-class person like myself or an owning-class person, think about what resources you can bring to the movement. Thank you for joining me today. As always, let us know how it goes by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search for The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. 
Transcripts are available on our website, which include any references, credits, and copyright information. Thanks to our sound editor, Maxwell Pearl. Seriously, thank you. Blessings to all of you as you continue in the work of being transformed, or transforming the movement, and transforming the world.